Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin is part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com and check out the vast array of eclectic podcasts they have to offer. That is OsirisPod.com. I have an excellent episode for you today, centered on a truly tremendous book. In this episode, I present an interview with Amit of Ghosh, a novelist and essayist whose latest book, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for Planet in Crisis, is a powerful work that traces our contemporary planetary crisis back to the discovery of the New World and the sea route to the Indian Ocean. The Nutmeg's Curse argues that the dynamics of climate change today are rooted in a centuries-old geopolitical order constructed by Western colonialism. At the center of Ghosh's narrative is the now ubiquitous spice nutmeg. The history of the nutmeg is one of conquest and exploitation of both human life and the natural environment. In Ghosh's hands, the story of the nutmeg becomes a parable for environmental crisis, revealing the ways human history has always been entangled with earthly materials such as spices, tea, sugarcane, opium, and fossil fuels. Our crisis, he shows, is ultimately the result of a mechanistic view of the earth, where nature exists only as a resource for humans to use for our own ends, rather than a force of its own, full of agency and meaning. Writing against the backdrop of the global pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protest, Ghosh frames these historical stories in a way that connects our shared colonial histories with the deep inequality we see around us today. By interweaving discussions on everything from the global history of the oil trade to the migrant crisis and the animist spirituality of indigenous communities around the world, the Nutmeg's Curse offers a sharp critique of Western society and speaks to the profoundly remarkable ways in which human history is shaped by non-human forces. In this episode, Amitabh and I discuss the history of the nutmeg, a spice whose narrative is tied to colonialism in ways that relate to today's climate crisis and particularly fossil fuels. We discuss terraforming, a term known in science fiction writing that relates to the ways in which colonizers, both in days of yore and today, reshape landscapes to meet their covetous ways. We converse on the power of storytelling in fighting climate change. We talk about those who see the earth as an inner body, talk about the future of vitalist politics and a whole lot more i truly could not recommend this book more and you'll learn more about it in this interview with amitav ghosh podcast hey i'm curious are you um are you a science fiction fan at all uh yeah i you know i read science fiction on and off uh, i don't uh, i haven't uh, i mean i used to read a lot of science fiction once many years ago and uh, you know i one of my books even won uh, one of the top uh, science fiction awards the oh, wow. wow you know i didn't yeah. i don't know if this is one of the first um uh, books i've read of yours and i won't be the last and I'm, i didn't know you wrote science fiction that's great you know what i just mentioned it cuz you know everyone's kind of um 
talking about Dune these days. And I could not, while I was watching um, the remake of Dune, not think about your book with Spice being at the heart of that one and like yeah. the absolute powers of, you know, in, in, in that case, that, that Spice allowed for like, um, you know, uh, space travel, but Nutmeg had a, had a unique power as well. And I thought that was actually a fun place to start. And because, you sure. know, the story that is, um, you know, kind of the backbone of your book, which goes so many places and just so I, I loved it in so many ways, as, as you'll Thank hear. You. But, uh, you know, there was a there was a power um, that that spice this. I mean, uh, pardon me, uh, nutmeg had. And I was I was wondering if we could start out talking about um, what was so special about nutmeg um, and, and, you know, why did it, you know, uh, lead to so many people, um, you know, yearning for it? Well, nutmeg, uh, mace, and clove, uh, they, were, uh, they were very rare, you know, I mean, both, uh, uh, both the nutmeg tree and the clove tree were endemic uh, to tiny archipelagos, uh, you know, within an archipelago, uh, which is uh, the uh, Maluku or, or the Malaccas or the Spice Islands. So, you know, in the, in the spice trade, uh, the late medieval spice trade, uh, the biggest, uh, the biggest, uh, the most important spice by quantity uh, was pepper, mm. you know, and vast quantities of pepper were taken to Europe. And, but most of that pepper came from India, uh, from the Malabar coast in India. But the most uh, expensive spices by far uh, were nutmegs, uh, mace and clove. So they had this incredible uh, rarity value, uh, which was why as soon as the Portuguese uh, uh, entered the Indian Ocean, uh, within a very short while of finding their way to the uh, to the pepper growing coast, uh, they set off to look for uh, you know this, uh, uh, the nutmeg islands and the clove islands, and uh, you know on the way of course they uh, you know founded cities and mm -hmm. like Malacca and seized various uh, you know various other uh, places. So uh, you know uh, these spices really were drivers of uh, you know of uh, the most important event that ever occurred in human history, uh, you know, according to Adam Smith, which was the opening up, which was the, the discovery of the sea routes to uh, the Americas and uh, to the Indian Ocean. Yeah, it's it's really it's truly wild how, uh, you know, I guess one of their big things is that they um, had medical or supposed medical properties and, and could possibly cure uh, plagues and just a symbol of luxury. But, you know, so that brought people in and and your book makes a, the point that, you know, the history of nutmeg is one of conquest and uh, controversial of both human life and the natural environment. And um, how is it that um, uh, uh, the history of nutmeg speaks to the history of conquest? I know it's a big question, but, uh, you know, that kind of can launch us into the parallels that lead us to present day. Sure, but I, I would place it the other way around. Okay. I think it's uh, the history of conquest in uh, North America huh? uh, that leads to what happened to the, um, you know, to the islands of the nutmeg. Mm. Uh, because really what you see from the 16th century onwards, uh, you know, is this incredible sort of unprecedented, uh, I mean, a really exceptional kind of violence uh, that, uh, that spreads across the Americas. You know, with uh, with the European conquest of the Americas, this sort of I mean, utter devastation that spreads across, uh, you know, these uh, two continents, which were once quite heavily populated, and which had innumerable flourishing civilizations. You know, 
uh, the Aztecs, uh, Incas, and so on. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, many uh, Native American uh, uh, civilizations in the North. So, you know, what happens in this period, I think is actually without precedent in human history. Uh, you know, this incredible, uh, I mean, just the scale of the violence, I mean, yeah. 75 to 90% of the population just being wiped out. Unreal. But on top of that, I mean, there's the depopulation of the, con of the two continents, but also the repopulation of the continents mm -hmm. uh, with enslaved people being brought in from, uh, from Africa. Mm -hmm. So I think what happens here is that, uh, you know, you see the emergence of an entire ideology of conquest, mm -hmm. but I think this ideology really has its origin in the violence between human beings. Uh, you know, uh, the, uh, these were elite Europeans, uh, they were elite European soldiers. And once they get this idea that they are in charge of everything, that they are especially in charge of, uh, 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 in charge of, you know, all these human beings whom they're either killing or conquering, uh, they get the idea that, uh, that this, is, this is also true uh, of non-human beings, you know, that this is also mm -hmm. true of all the products of the earth that all these products of all these gifts of the earth exist only for their use, that the earth itself is inert and dead. And so are these, uh, so are these various products. So, you know, you just think of it, what an extraordinary idea this is, that, you know, uh, this, uh, uh, this Dutch expedition sets off uh, for the Banda Islands. Uh, and, uh, you know, they just decide, we're just going to do away with all these people who live here. Uh, and just grab the, uh, you know, the, the produce. Uh, I really don't think such an idea could have occurred, you know, before this period. Yeah. Because if, if you consider, uh, you know, people had been trading with the Banda Islands for millennium, millenniums, you know, mm -hmm. uh, people from India, from China, from Africa, the Middle East, they had gone all the way across the Indian Ocean, making these very difficult uh, journeys, uh, to these islands. And when they got to these islands, they often lived there, you know, for uh, substantial amounts of time. It would have been very easy for them to take away the trees or to take away, you know, some seeds and go back and grow uh, the, the trees at home. But they never did that. No. You know, that's the extraordinary thing. They never did that. And you know why they didn't do that? Because for them, uh, you know, a nutmeg wasn't a nutmeg unless it came from the Banda Islands mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. unless it was cultivated by the Bandanese people. You know, yeah. that was what made the nutmeg the nutmeg. Uh, you know, in the same way as today, we would say that, you know, uh, a Burgundy wine yeah. uh, isn't a Burgundy wine unless it comes from Burgundy and is made by the people of that region, you know. Mm -hmm. So what this, what this says really is that you know, there was a time when people recognized uh, connections between human beings, the land and the products of the earth. And they recognized that these were in some sense inseparable. Uh, now, the Dutch wouldn't, uh, wouldn't ever have said to themselves, now, you know, they're in Burgundy, they're growing some uh, nice grapes. Uh, let's go off there and kill them all and, uh, you know, just gra grab their grapes. You know, because they would have recognized, you know, that... Uh, uh, a Burgundy wine isn't a Burgundy wine unless it's made by the people of Burgundy, you know. Yep, yep. But this is the connection that comes to be absolutely severed, you know, in this uh, period of, uh, uh, what should we say, the most brutal, brutal period of colonialism.
yeah. uh, where the whole world seems to be seems to appear as just being presented uh, for the consumption of this uh, actually actually a very small uh, minority, you know, um, elite Europeans. And later, of course, they turn this violence also upon Europe, yep. upon peasants, mm -hmm. uh, upon poor peasant women who are, who get burnt on a large scale as as witches, uh, you know. So it's a ghastly kind of uh, violence that radiates outwards, you know, from the conquest of the Americas. It was, um, and, and you touched on it a bit there. It was really interesting. There was, it's kind of these two worldviews of the, of the world as being inert versus, um, versus Gaia, the world being alive that was kind of, kind of coming into place so often throughout your book. And um, yeah, you did, you, you touched on something I want to talk about, how uh, the slave trade trade heightened kind of this uh, thought. It was was the rendering of humans into mute resources that enabled the metaphysical leap, whereby the earth and everything in it could also be re reduced to inertness. Some <laughs> some real evil philosophies in that, but um, that's I mean something to really you know discuss a little bit more at length is this idea of the world being inert versus it being alive and and how different cultures look at it and what that means. So I'd love to hear you speak on that a little bit. Yes, I mean, that's absolutely the fundamental theme of my book. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, what we saw emerging in that period is this vision of the earth as inert. And that vision today has become uh, completely dominant in the sense uh, that um, dominant elites across the world have completely so, uh, subscribed to this belief. Yep. And uh, that's really happened, actually, quite recently, you know, going back maybe 50 years, but most of all, uh, in the last 30 years, you know, so we can't forget how recently th that's happened. And again, you know, this is an elite belief, uh, uh, largely, I would say that there are still very large numbers of people uh, across the planet who don't see the world like that, yep. uh, you know, uh, and a lot of those people are actually indigenous peoples, uh, no matter whether they're uh, people in uh, North America uh, or or India or Indonesia. So, you know, these are beliefs that really are completely rooted within a certain kind of modernity, uh, which just treats the earth uh, and everyone who lives in it uh, as, as resources to be exploited, to be used for profit. Now, you know, of course, it's not like people didn't uh, exploit uh, exploit each other and that there was no violence before this period. But I think what we see after this period is a completely different, uh, you know, it's taken to a completely different level, you know. So, yes. you know, I think the real problems, uh, the real problem that faces us today, uh, the problem for, you know, writers, uh, for people who do imaginative work of any kind, mm -hmm. is to try and sort of think about what are the alternatives. And when we try to think of alternatives, uh, you know, we have to look uh, for uh, alternatives that existed before. I'm not saying that we can uh, we can just adopt those alternatives. Obviously not, because uh, you know we are at a very different point in time. But we can learn from these alternatives. And one of the things that's so clear in the thinking of uh, uh, those people is that they thought of the earth as a vital living entity and their stories reflected this vitality. What I found, I, I loved your line about how you're seeing how the earth is reacting to climate change and that makes it even harder to see it as a nerd. You can almost see it as a living being fighting back for its existence, which is, which is really 
really um, something I thought about a lot. What, there's another line that really got me on the other way is only once, this was Ben um, Enric Reich, I think I said that right, only once we imagined the world mm. to be dead could we dedicate ourselves to making it so, which really got me. Um, I want to discuss something that, that uh, I've never used, heard this uh, or thought of this terminology in this way, and that's terraforming. It's, it's something um, you know, that it's known in sci-fi, um, originally used by the sci-fi writer Jack Williamson, but um, you wrote colonization and conquest are as old as human history itself. It's happened all over the globe. What makes European colonization of the Americas distinctive, however, is the sheer scale and the rapidity of the environmental transformation that accompanied it, radically altering more than a quarter of the Earth's surface. That's just insane. But can you describe, um, you know, these environmental transformations that occurred? Well, I think this is actually one of the th one of the features which distinguishes, uh, you know, the European conquest of the Americas from Absolutely. other forms of conquest. You know mm -hmm. that. Uh, in the 17th century, the uh, the English, especially the English who came to North America, uh, you know, they felt, uh, uh, you know, a kind of horror of the landscape often, you know, because a lot of the landscape, especially in this region and in uh, uh, and in New England, was swampy, and uh, they hated the swamps. You know, they hated the swamps, uh, even the forests uh, they found disturbing and so on. Uh, so they were determined uh, to turn it into a New England. You know, I mean, that yeah, was the aspiration. Absolutely, it was literally, literally the aspiration. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, you know, that seems to have worked. I mean, you, you know, there are uh, there are parts of even Virginia and certainly parts of uh, New England where you would think yourself to be back in a kind of England. Okay. So generally speaking, you know, I think uh, if, if you had come to, let's say, North America, uh, in the in the pre-conquest period, and uh, you would have seen uh, a landscape, uh, a sort of uh, a sort of a terrain, which is completely different from today's. Mm. Uh, it would be completely unrecognizable, you know. Uh, whereas I think uh, you know this is not the case. Uh, for example, let's say for England, uh, for um, uh, for. Uh, rural Germany. I mean, not that these areas also haven't been geoengineered uh, to some degree, uh, but I think they would still be recognizable, you know, to a time traveler. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly, that's also true of, uh, you know, uh, central India, you know, the rural parts of central India, mm -hmm. but it's not true of uh, uh, large parts of the Americas. And that's, what's, uh, th that's what really happened. I mean, uh, the Europeans uh, recreated, uh, you know, these landscapes to suit their ways of life, you know, with livestock and, uh, you know, certain kinds of farming and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not to say that Native Americans were not farming, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah. they were not farming in the European way, mm -hmm. but they were using the landscape very productively and creatively, you know, I mean, they lived uh, uh, very well often, uh, you know. Uh, as as many European uh, observers attested, uh, but of course, once the European uh, sort of style of life uh, uh, is introduced, uh, it makes the Native American style of life unsustainable. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is again a very distinctive feature of uh, Europe of the European colonization of the Americas, uh, which is that the landscape itself was weaponized uh, as uh, as a, as an instrument of war, 
you know, it became a, a means of uh, literally driving Native Americans uh, off the land. Yeah. Just the introduction of livestock, you know, so much interfered with Native American ways of life. Uh, yeah, that they would uh, you know, the livestock in war and in, in their battles. That was that was that was very interesting to learn about. Yeah, that's a very striking thing because, yeah. of course, Native Americans understood that these are the companion species, mm -hmm. and that uh, you know the companion species are are the ones who are completely disrupting the landscape. And you know, to an astonishing degree, uh, this has continued to the present day. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you think of what. Uh, Bolsonaro wants to do in the Amazon, it's literally this. Exactly. Uh, he wants to turn the Amazon into a kind of a Midwest, you know, shorn of its forests uh, and uh, basically for livestock farming. Uh, that's yeah. uh, that's his aspiration. I know? was certainly going to bring that up because, I mean, that's just such a perfect example of how, you know, colonial terraform, terraforming, um, you know, uh, is is still happening. I mean, he wants to revert these forests and and you know, uh, uh, make this forest into farmland and, and, and revert it in that way. And it's, it's, it's wild that so many of the things that, uh, you know, we're speaking about uh, 400, 500, even more years ago, um, you know, still ring true in, in parts of the world and in, in, in major way. And, you know, I, I guess that one of the parallels that's really present in your book is kind of how energy and probably specifically fossil fuels is kind of the new nutmeg or clove and, um, you know, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that link um, between uh, nutmeg and, and energy being this new driving force. Well, you know, if you look at the great struggles, uh, especially in the Indian Ocean region uh, yeah. in the 15th and 16th century, uh, they were really over botanical resources, uh, you know, yep. Yep. Uh, like nutmeg, pepper, um, cloves and so on. Uh, and we live under this kind of delusion that, you know, the, uh, the 16th century uh, is long ago, that uh, humanity has somehow freed itself from the earth. Uh, we are so modern, we are so, you know, uh, we don't really depend on the earth so much. But all of this is a complete delusion because at, at the end of the day, fossil fuels are themselves. Uh, botanical resources. I mean, they're nothing but fossilized forests, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's that again is why so much of the uh, geopolitical struggle uh, of this era uh, is actually again in the Indian Ocean, because the Indian Ocean was uh, uh, blessed with vast forests, uh, you know. Uh, and it's these forests, again, which are now really essentially uh, driving uh, not just uh, climate change, uh, uh, but also uh, the geopolitical struggles over this region. Yeah, you know, what was interesting too um, about fossil fuels is kind of how, um, you know, beyond capitalism, neoliberalism, uh, and just greed of individuals and corporations, you make an outstanding argument how, uh, you know, they, they are also um, champions still because they possess a unique property of um, reinforcing the structures of power. Can you explain what you mean here? Because I thought this was a very eye-opening and an important point. Yeah, in the usual discourses on energy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these subjects are studied uh, through the lens of economics usually. And economics likes to reduce everything to the quantifiable, uh, you know, to numbers. So often, you know, non-quantifiable aspects of energy just escape 
you know, that's that form of analysis. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, for economists, for technocrats, etc., uh, really energy produced by, let's say, um, uh, by solar radiation or by wind, mm -hmm. uh, every every unit of that is e equivalent to every single unit of, uh, of, let's say, energy produced by fossil fuels. Absolutely. So, uh, so the argument goes, you can just replace one with the other. But of course, there are all these non-tangible uh, forms of uh, 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 forms of uh, how shall I say of vitality, really, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, whereby energy enmeshes certain kinds of energy uh, enmesh themselves in human life in in ways that are uh, have nothing to do with the fact that they produce energy. So, for example, uh, uh, you know, Andreas Malm has shown, uh, you know. Uh, that uh, the standard narrative of the industrial revolution, which is that you know uh, these guys uh, invent some steam-powered engines, uh, and suddenly you know the whole world takes up fossil fuels, you know that uh, uh, this is absolutely not the case. Uh, in the late 18th century and early 19th century, uh, and well into the 19th century in England as well as in uh, as in uh, uh, as in New England, uh, the main sources of power uh, were uh, were wind and water. You know that's why when you when you look at uh, old textile mills in the northeast, they're always beside a river because they had uh, these huge uh, uh, these huge water wheels, and uh, you know that form of energy was actually uh, perfectly efficient. I mean, it's by no means the case that coal was more efficient than uh, wind or water power. But uh, what Malm shows, in fact, is that uh, the reason that industrialists began to switch. Uh, to fossil fuel energy uh, was simply because it suited their interests because uh, you know they could expropriate fossil fuels in a way that you cannot expropriate wind and water uh, you know it made it made it easier for them to control uh, their workforces so you know that was why uh, essentially fossil f uh, uh, coal became dominant and the same is true of oil uh, you know, uh, uh, from the uh, from the early 20th century onwards, uh, uh, Anglo-American elites invested a lot of energy in uh, making the world, uh, you know, adopt uh, oil at, uh, at a large scale. So again, I mean, uh, you know, and the reason for that is that oil has some uh, very special uh, geopolitical ca characteristics. Uh, you know, oil has to be transported. Uh, you know, in huge tankers mm -hmm. uh, through narrow uh, through narrow choke points, and these choke points can be very easily controlled. So, geopolitically speaking, uh, oil really offers uh, many advantages to dominant maritime powers. Uh, you know, but uh, you know, you think of the alternative. I mean, suppose uh, India and China were generating solar energy at scale. Uh, you know, this energy would not have to be transported across uh, these choke points. Mm -hmm. uh, and at one stroke, uh, you know, uh, a maritime uh, power would become devalued. You know, so the, these are some of the aspects, uh, some of the sort of, uh, I call them really uncanny uh, aspects of uh, uh, the ways in which fossil fuels have, have taken a complete grip on us. But, you know, it's even more than that. Mm. You know, uh, look at the ways in which fossil fuels actually interact with others, with geopolitical structures of power, if you like. So, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, I mean, uh, you know, the early American oil explorers who went to Saudi Arabia and so on, uh, you know, they, and there's, there are extensive records of this. Uh, you know, they were like uh, sort of 
are racist in the usual uh, in the usual way. Mm -hmm. And when they saw the Bedouin and so on, the Bedouin for them were primitive people. Uh, so you know, they uh, the assumption was that uh, you know the Bedouin will never really know what to do with this uh, uh, with all this oil wealth, and we'll manage it for them, and therefore it's safe and so on. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, this was the thinking even 30, 40 years ago. But uh, if you look, uh, if you look at today's uh, structures of power, in fact, what is really striking is that Saudi Arabia and the Gulf sheikdoms have become major players in global geopolitics. Uh, you know, every single crisis that's occurring around Asia right now uh, has an involvement by the Saudis and even more than that, by tiny states like Qatar, or the United Arab Emirates, you know, which have populations in, in, you know, not even in the millions, but yet they have their finger in absolutely every pie. More than that, you know, these states have learned, have figured out how to manipulate uh, the United Kingdom and the United States like nobody else ever has before. <laughs> you know, uh, they absolutely run the game. Absolutely, <laughs> you know. So you see how these forms of racist thinking are so profoundly misleading, uh, you know, uh, because uh, of course, uh, you know, Arabs figured out how to, um, you know, how to play the game and how to play it with extreme skill. You know, that's again, something that we don't recognize how skillful they are at this manipulation. How, for example, after 9-11, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the House of Bush, which is so closely tied to the House of Saud, uh, really allowed, uh, you know, the, uh, the Saudis to just uh, fly away on the same day, uh, you know, it helped to evacuate all the Saudi students and so on and so forth. Uh, similarly, they have, they have absolutely a complete grip on the pulse of uh, the United Kingdom as well, uh, you know, because uh, they know what those people mainly want is just money. Uh, so you know, they give them money, <laughs> and uh, and uh, they they figured these things out completely. Yeah. Uh, even even as we speak, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is busy trying to uh, dilute, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the joint statement uh, that uh, that's going to precede uh, COP twenty six, and over the years they've been incredibly effective at that. You know, uh, from behind the scenes, slowly, quietly, sort of changing the language, manipulating things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we always talk about the oil corporations and so on. And of course, I mean, uh, you know, they're a large part of it. Uh, but uh, we have to remember that, uh, uh, you know, there are some extremely skillful diplomatic operatives uh, who are also at work here on behalf of, uh, uh, you know, uh, the oil shakedowns. Yeah, it's, it's your book opened my eyes to so many things that you just discussed there that that I hadn't really pieced together. Um, you know, I knew all like different different parts of it, and it just you laid out such such in such an incredible way that it all makes sense in a really daunting way too. But um, also, you know, what I always I'm I'm guilty of kind of always just pointing the finger at capitalism when it comes to uh, you know the climate crisis, and 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 you know part of that is absolutely mm. correct. But uh, something you pointed out, which which I'd I'd love to bring up, because I. I think a lot of people don't think about too, too also is that, um, you know, you mentioned how wa a war is the father of all things and it's fossil fuels mm. that, uh, that allow for wars to be successful. You actually pointed out in each, uh, war, um, especially in, in the more modern wars, um, how fossil fuels came into play, but, you know, it actually was, um, there's some myths about capitalism, um, you know, that, that I would love to hear you talk about and how, 
you know, um, kind of conquest and, and slavery and, and just the pillaging that's happened in the past actually was the backbone that actually allowed for capitalism to exist in the first place. And I think I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Yes, well, <laughs> there you are. I mean, you know, uh, people always uh, speak about everything as though uh, as though capitalism was this system which sort of uh, came into being in the in, in, you know in the 19th century, mm -hmm. and it was this vast machine which has its own laws and so on and so forth. But uh, you know, uh, the history of Western conquest far predates capitalism. Uh, you know, it goes back uh, to the 15th, uh, to the 16th, actually to the 15th uh, century, you know, uh, um, and on from there. But for the first two or three centuries, uh, it wasn't capitalism. Uh, the system, uh, the economic system was not capitalism. Uh, it was mercantilism, uh, uh, you know, which is a completely different kind of system. And, you know, uh, Westerners especially like to believe that capitalism created this uh, this, uh, this sort of free market system. But the market was not free at all. The market was constantly manipulated by uh, by colonial powers. Uh, you know, this it was. Uh, I mean, uh, Indian entrepreneurs, for example, uh, were put at a huge disadvantage through this entire 19th century, uh, uh, through uh, tactics of uh, racial segregation and so on. But also simply because uh, because of race, they weren't allowed uh, to enter certain markets in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And I think we see, uh, you know. Cedric Robinson came up with this term racial capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely true. And in the case of the, uh, of the Banda Islands, we see so clearly, uh, you know, how this racial capitalism comes into being. Uh, because the Dutch East India Company was a pioneer in absolutely every way. The and the Dutch were pioneers, you know. They were pioneers of capitalism, and they remain pioneers of capitalism to this day. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, they're, uh, they're an extremely, uh, um, you know, a brilliant pioneering people. So they created this, uh, 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 this Dutch East India Company, one of the wor world's first joint stock companies. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's this uh, joint stock company that launches this, uh, uh, this appalling massacre uh, of the Bandanese. And their idea is that after they've cleared these islands, uh, they're going to create a new system. And they could have, I mean, if all the myths of capitalism were true, what they would have created there is a sort of free market system. But that's not what they do. You know, they bring in uh, Euro-descended planters and literally hand them uh, these, uh, these plantations. Then they ship in laborers, uh, enslaved laborers, whom uh, uh, the Dutch East India Company is instrumental in uh, enslaving, you know. From all around the Indian Ocean, they enslave them and take them there uh, and make them work for the, uh, you know, uh, for the, uh, uh, the Euro-descended uh, uh, planters. And this system is, uh, you know, didn't disappear until the, what was it, the 1880s or something. Mm -hmm. So it was in place until then. Uh, and actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, even then it, uh, it didn't completely disappear even until uh, the 19, uh, 1940s and 50s. Uh, even in that period, uh, you know, the Banda Islands were basically being run by Euro-descended uh, uh, planters. So, you know, what we see there is something completely different from the mythology that surrounds capitalism. It's something completely different. And in a, in a broad sense, the structures that were put in place, the extremely racialized structures that were put in place, uh, you know, from the 16th century onwards, are still with us. You know, they've not disappeared. I mean, who are the people who profit most from, uh, you know, globalization, from the global system? 
it continues to be uh, disproportionately you're a descended people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to take a little bit of a left turn, I just want to make sure we get this in. Throughout the book, um, and I thought this was so special, you spoke to the power of storytelling. Um, and there was one line, it is empathy that makes it possible for humans to understand each other's stories. This is why storytelling needs to be at the heart of a global politics of vitality. And you also, uh, I think it's another point of the book, you mentioned how storytelling is a necessary first step towards finding solutions and finding a common uh, common idiom and shared story. And, and I just, I thought that was, it, it is so important. And I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit how storytelling could play a role towards, um, you know, bringing us together a little bit and solving some of these problems. A lot of people nowadays talk about traditional ecological knowledge, uh, you know, and and, uh, in many departments of ecology and so on, uh, they study traditional ecological knowledge as though uh, it was just something instrumental, uh, you know, as though this kind of knowledge could just be appropriated uh, and used for uh, managing landscapes. But I think what they don't understand is that traditional ecological knowledge grows out of a broader culture in which storytelling is absolutely fundamental. Uh, And you can see this so much in relation to, for example, uh, Native American culture. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if you've read the book, Braiding Sweetgrass by uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an absolutely wonderful book. And, uh, you you know, she shows us how, in fact, uh, you know, uh, corn uh, uh, is thought of in Native American culture as one of, uh, you know, as, as a kind of goddess, as a, as a being, as a spirit, uh, you know, uh, uh, who interacts uh, with human beings in, uh, in, in various complicated ways. And I think this is exactly the thing. I mean, the, we will never uh, be able to stop thinking of the earth as uh, anything other than inert and anything other than uh, just a sort of repository of resources uh, until we learn to tell different kinds of stories about it. Because the culture of modernity, you know, uh, as it evolves, and I give several examples in the, uh, in the book, is one that ultimately comes to be filled with what you might almost call a hatred of the earth, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And you see this hatred of the earth now being manifested so openly uh, in these schemes that uh, are the great uh, uh, billionaires of our world. Uh, um, are launching. I mean, they say quite openly, they just want to leave the earth. Yeah. Uh, you know, the earth is the next one. <laughs> uh, yeah, onto the next one. I mean, conquest yeah. something else. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, as if, I mean, you know, we had a perfectly good planet of our own, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> a rich, beautiful planet. Yep. Uh, and now that we've uh, really uh, sort of made a train wreck out of it, uh, they want to go on to another planet. And yep. Can you imagine the train wreck they'll make of those planets yeah, exactly. and of themselves for that matter? Mention how that's, you know, if, if, if there's aliens or anyone up there, that's that's not who they want to see coming, you know, uh, no. to the planet, <laughs> humans. Uh, no. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. There's um yes. there's some nice points and to bring us home um you know there's obviously there's a lot of um atrocities in in the books that you lay out and I I I don't think or at least I can I'll speak for myself I, I can't really get around my head some of these these um you know uh, acts of uh, colonialism and some of these uh, just just you know uh, the acts of genocide that occurred it's just it's the horrors are uh, almost literally unimaginable to me at times and. So, I mean, it's, it's important to discuss these, but to kind of bring us home a little bit, there are some points of um, hope that you 
that you alluded to, um, you know, throughout, but also uh, ex extremely so towards the end of your book. And I'm speaking of, uh, you know, uh, things the Pope has said, um, you know, some of the activism in China, um, some of the wins for indigenous people recently. Um, and I was curious if we could talk about those because it's, 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 I'd love to shine a light on some hope, um, you know, that we see as, as we all work, you know, a lot of us who care and, uh, uh, you know, work, work towards a solution here and to, to you know, making making the earth as beautiful as we see it to be well i do think that there is cause for hope you know uh, because uh, i think uh, uh, there are many many uh, young people out there today uh, who have uh, started to look upon the earth in a different way Absolutely. and i would go even farther than that and say that uh, in general uh, you know, vitalist ideas of of uh, of the earth, mm -hmm. and what we call dark green religion. Uh, you know, uh, really sort of earth earth centered religions are growing incredibly fast. So I think there is a big big shift uh, underway today, where people are beginning to think. I mean, you know, they come from all sorts of different positions. Mm -hmm. So it's not just one thing. And some of these positions are also very scary, like uh, eco-fascism and so on. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I do feel that there is some sort of broad shift underway. And I think the sort of uh, popular, I mean, the, uh, the, the enthusiasm uh, uh, that was uh, excited by the, uh, uh, by the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, during the pandemic is a sign of that, which is not to say that there wasn't an equal and opposite uh, reaction. But the very fact that uh, so many people responded so positively uh, and supportively, I think, goes to show that, you know, uh, there is a, a very big shift underway today. I think young people especially are confronting, uh, you know, the future that lies ahead of them. And they understand uh, that, you know, we are heading towards disaster. Mm -hmm. We are speeding towards disaster. They understand this. Uh, you know, they understand it in their bones because they can feel, you know, how their own uh, life opportunities are shrinking, how, uh, you know, their incomes are shrinking in relation to the expectations of the past. So, you know, they understand this. And I, 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 take, uh, uh, I take heart from so many of the uh, sorts of movements uh, that young people, indigenous people, especially indigenous women, uh, you know, the movements that they're sort of uh, starting today. You know, you just take something like the dumpster diving movement, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that's just such an amazing thing because in a culture that's just uh, predicated on treating everything as waste uh, and uh, expendable, uh, here you have people actually spearheading a different kind of movement, you know, which is trying to retrieve the waste. So, yes, I, I do feel that 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 we can take heart from some of these uh, some of these movements yeah i think we have to we have to i love that yes. you pointed out that uh in new zealand a river was granted legal rights of a human that's right <laughs> just little things like that they, they really mm. really help um i gotta i truly i love this book it, it, it thank just, you it's something there's so many facets to it that i've learned so much it's to me it was an Ode to the power of storytelling, of parables, of, of vitalist politics, and and kind of you know, and the biggest thing of, of seeing the earth, um, Gaia, as it as it really mm. is alive, and in that way it was so special. So, uh, thank you for writing it, and thank, thank you, Mike. Thank you for taking the time to talk about. It. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on.
Colo mentality. I say you fit in, never release yourself. Colo mentality. If you say you be colonial man, you don't be slave from before. They don't release you now, but you never release yourself. If you so, if you so, them they do, them they overdo all the things that them they do. If you so, if you so, them they do, them they do, them they overdo all the things that them they do. If you so, if you so, them they do, them they think it's the better pass them, brother. I know if you so. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.